I'm ready. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. It's the show designed to help you get your mojo working. So what do we do here at Twig? Well, we find people that we think are interesting. We find the best of the best in all areas of our life, in and out of the workplace, to give you tips and tools to help you get your mojo working. It could be around creativity, coming up with ideas. It could be about strategy. It could be about building culture in a business. It could be about health, wealth, fitness, all those things, or it could be all of that all in one show. And joining me here every week, the man who holds the whole show together, he's behind the panel every week, he's my good mate Robbo. What's going on, mate? Oh, you know, another day, another dollar, really. I'm glad that you think that I hold the show together, though. That's nice. What's Hockey right? straps and gaff tape. <laughs> yeah, the old gaff. Mate, um, <laughs> what's, what's that? Over in the corner. No, your hand. What are you holding? Oh, oh, 20 cents. I've got, 20, my, got my 20 cents worth. <laughs> so you've brought your 20 cents worth in this week. Oh, actually, I've done some work this week, mate. Have a listen to this. Robbo's 20 cents worth. What do you reckon of that? Ooh, mate, you have been busy. I like. But, um, I mean, that's good. And you got yeah. the coin, but what's the, what is your 20 cents worth? My 20 cents worth is actually about mobile phones in restaurants. I, um... I took my, my wife, fair wife, out for dinner Friday week ago and I was looking around the restaurant during the meal and I was surprised at how many people were sitting there across the table from their family or their partner or whatever else, mm. staring into the screen of a mobile phone. I mean, I, knew the, yeah. I know the old iPhone 6 is out now, but geez, really? So, um, <laughs> so I came home and I did a bit of research and I found this really interesting story that came out of New York. There was an, an established restaurant that had been around for 10 years or so and had been really well known and doing really well and had a really good reputation, but their reputation started to fail a bit. People were giving negative comments about the service. So the owner of this restaurant hired a company to do some investigation and see if they could help them out with, um, with what was going wrong. And they actually went back and they found some old security footage of the restaurant and they had a look at it. And, um, and what they found was this. 10 years ago, when the restaurant first started, the customers on average would spend about eight minutes before closing the menu after they'd been seated and the waiter would show up almost instantly taking their order. Six minutes after that, the food would usually start turning up to the tables. Out of an average of 45 customers in a, in a sitting, usually two meals would be sent back because they were too cold. Usually it was a steak that wasn't cooked right, you know, something like that. Once the, once the diners were done, the customers would be there, they'd give them their check, and within five minutes of the check being delivered, they would usually have left. The average time for a meal in this restaurant in New York 10 years ago, one hour, five minutes. What do you reckon it might be these days? So 10 years ago. Yep, that's 10 years well, ago. It's, it's going to be a tad, a tad slower and a tad distracted, one would think, but go on. So same restaurant, same 45 seats, just 10 years later, right? 45 customers walk in and have seated. 18 of those customers, as soon as they're seated, have their phones out and are taking photos, sending emails, trying to connect to Wi-Fi, 
and mind you, calling waiters over to help them connect to Wi-Fi before they've even opened their menus, right? The average time from them being seated to them ordering has become 21 minutes. So uh, the food starts coming out, and that's still within six minutes, again, depending on what type of food it is. 26 out of the 45 customers then spend an average of three minutes taking photos of the food. 14 of the 45 customers take pictures of each other with the food in front of them or eating the food. That takes another four minutes. Then, get this, nine out of the 45 customers send their food back to get reheated because it's cold. Because it's cold. (laughs) You, You have to feel sorry for people, you know, whether it be food or a, or a cup of coffee, you, it, it must frustrate the owners of customers to be, going, to, to, to be watching this go on in your restaurant when you've worked so hard getting the produce, making it, getting the staff right, the environment right. I, 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 that doesn't surprise me. Oh. I, within a, I was in Sydney in the same week. I had two people in front of me when their coffee or their meal was delivered, take photos of it. Yeah. Staggered. Yeah, it's crazy. Eat it. It is. Uh, Mate, I reckon that's worth more than 20 cents. It's about 50 cents worth, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Keep the change, buddy. That's, all, that's all dinner was worth. We should. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into it. The Mojo Radio Show. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, mm. I talked with uh, Matt Church on the show, mm. which, by the way, was a really good show. Be- mate, great production. It, it really sounded great. It was a terrific show. It was a ripper. Mm. And Matt mentioned uh, the book he was reading right now, Mm -hmm. which was a book by Dan Gregory and Kieran Flanagan, Mm -hmm. and that book was called Selfish, Scared, and Stupid. Now, that book is now out. (laughs) It sounds like a lot of my Saturday nights. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said to you at the time, uh, we should get them on the the call. So, uh, guess what? You're going to do a Stephen Seagulls on me, aren't you? Yes, sir. Got got, got him on the line. So, I've got the guys on the line. Before we... um, Never one to be outdone. (laughs) Let me me fill you in on who these uh, these guys are. So, um, I met Dan Gregory a little while ago. We did some speaking gigs together. And Dan graduated from uni with a BA in communication and then got straight into advertising. And get this, as soon as he got in there, he won one of the top awards for creativity and since then has worked on, I mean, his, his list of brands he's worked on in the country is pretty damn cool. Mm. Um, but apart from that, he's worked as a stand-up, uh, written books, and he's a social commentator and behavioral researcher and strategist. But what I think I like most about Dan is that not only is he sort of seeing what's going on in the place, but he has an opinion and he doesn't sugarcoat it. Like he's one of these yeah. guys that just gives it to you straight up, which – no bullshit. Yeah, it's and it's it's just refreshing. So, um, also on the line, we have his partner, which is his business partner, Kieran Flanagan. And I've also met Kieran and seen Kieran on the stage, and she's a fantastic speaker. And Kieran is the creative officer of the business they run together called the Impossible Institute, of which mm-hmm. we're going to get into and sort of find out more about that. Yeah. But Kieran's one of the few female creative directors in the country and has worked in the big end of town in terms of agencies and, of course, the client list goes on forever. And um, the two of them together, I just think, make a a fantastic duo to have on the call today. Mm -hmm. So, um, Kieran and Dan, welcome to our little radio show, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Can I just say, before we kick things off, too, that um, not only I'm impressed that Gary managed to line you guys up for an interview, but also that he could hook two telephones through to the studio here today. <laughs> Amazing technology. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to uh, 
I guess say ever since I met you guys, the um, I love the name um, the Impossible Institute. Can you just um, for the listeners give us an idea of what that what that is about, how it started, what that's about, and the sorts of people you are working with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you know, uh, you know, Kieran and my background is really about um, human behaviour. That's where our interest has been. That's where our research is, and that's really what we do is is we look at human behaviour and look at what it takes to to make what's not possible. So we spend a lot of time working with, you know, big corporates, um, looking at how they can make the promises that they uh, that they make in their marketing shop in their people's behaviour, and also how we can get people who are who, for whatever reason, either through education or through you know their own belief systems, sort of don't believe that they're creative, don't believe that they can be innovative, don't believe that they can come up with new ideas. And we actually give them systems and processes that allow those things to sort of, uh, those talents to be developed. So that's, that's where we spend a lot of our time. That's good. And is there a particular size of business that this is most appropriate for, Dan? Or is this pretty much, as a, as a business, you're working with any size organization? Look, I think it's, uh, it's a mixture of both. Um, mm. Certainly what we look to do is we look to help corporates unlock the, you know, the potential of the talent they've got. But even in the SME space, you know, we do a bit of work about, um, you know, how do those guys punch above their weight? You know, they sort of see, you know, the idea that they could compete with the, uh, with the big end of town in, in terms of their marketing as an impossibility. And we sort of say, well, hang on, let's, let's have a look at that. Because if you, uh, if you embrace that, that kind of, um, that kind of creativity, you can punch above your way. And likewise, you know, we do some work with schools as well, teaching, teaching kids to see creativity as a discipline, not just a talent, something that they can, they can foster and they can develop. So if you were working with an SME, say you're an SME or, in fact, you're a startup, because guaranteed there are people listening to this who would have always dreamt about working for themselves or it's someone who is an SME with a small team, Tell me the immediate things these people should ask themselves in order to start unlocking that potential, Dan. Like what, what are the things that you would immediately say to them they should leave this call and start to question or query about their own business or their dreams? Well, Gary, um, we, when we work with people in that space, you know, one of those first questions is knowing what business they're actually in. You know, we're surprised by how, how often people don't understand what it is they're really selling. So they think they're selling one thing and then you work with them and you find out they're not. We were working, for example, with an optometrist and uh, we said, well, what business are you in? Where do you make your money? And they said, oh, well, we actually make our money from the, the glasses sales, right? They, so we're like, okay, actually, it's not what you do as an optometrist that makes the most of your money, testing eyes and things. They said, no, no, it's, it's the front of shop. And we said, okay, well, you're in retail fashion. So they didn't understand where, what business they were in and we said, why don't you then set your shops up like a retail fashion store? How many glasses are you selling to people? Are you selling them the new spring range, the new summer range? Are you treating it like fashion retail? Yeah, optometrist shops are, are dull and boring. They're yeah. as far from fashion retail as you can possibly get. They feel very medical, but where they make their money is the opposite. So mm. what business they're really in is a crucial question for every business to be able to answer. Is there a process you could take them through for that, Karen? Like when it sounds, and I think it's a fantastic question to for someone to reflect on, is there 
Is there a way of thinking or a process that you could give to somebody now to help them flesh that out so they go away from the obvious to dig down to the true juice? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously starting with where do you make your money? Uh, you know, where, what, how do you do it? I mean, most people, like doctors, sell time. So, you know, if, no matter what doctor you're in, they don't sell health and they don't sell well-being or any of those things. They sell time. Uh, so where do you make your money, firstly, and then start thinking what emotionally do you make your money out of? You know, what are mm. people truly buying from you? Uh, because you, we need to emotionally solve that problem. So you can, you know, just listing all the things out. Just you know, write a list. I think that's, people- that's actually a really good point. It's actually about the value exchange that's taking place. So mm. what's... What's the value you really pr- provide versus what's the product or service that you produce? So an example of that might be Kodak. So Kodak, you know, if you think back to the, the advertising Kodak ran in the 1970s, it was very clear that they were in the business of preserving memories. That was the value exchange that was going on. And the memory preservation business is a multi-billion dollar piece of business in terms of cloud computing, data storage, USB technology, you know, all of which, you know, Kodak had a hand in developing but they forgot the business they were in, in other words, the value exchange that was going on, and they focused just on producing product, and that's what fundamentally got them into trouble. Mm. Can that change, Dan? Can that change over time? Like the questions that Kieran's talking about here, you guys are talking about, does, does that move? Uh, I, look, I think it can move, but I think what you're looking for is what's a, a, a universal value that you're, you, um, that gives you something to innovate through. Mm. So an example of that might be, um, you know, we were speaking at a social media conference recently and someone someone stood up at the back of the room and said, you know, how would how would you guys sell gravel? Which I think we can all agree is a high degree of difficulty sale. And so we said, well it's not actually about the gravel, it's about what's what's the value you provide. Mm. And you know, what we talked about is if you engineer your gravel to the point that it's um it's engineered above code, all of a sudden that puts you in the above code business, not the gravel business. Mm. So, you know, because everything, everything in the building industry is engineered to code. So if you go, let's say you go 5% further. So you, that puts you in the above code business. So the value you provide is independent of the, the products that get developed. So in other words, if we no longer use gravel, if we start using glass or plastics or timber to build houses, it doesn't matter that, that the, the marketplace changes because the value that you're offering is actually an eternal value. And, and, and that's what you should be driving your innovation through. Because the most successful innovators aren't driving innovation through, well, I've got a great idea for a new product. They're actually driving their innovation through the value that they're providing and, and really the, the identity that they're providing for their customers to live into. That's nice. That's gold. That's gold. You guys talk about um, purposeful identity. Can you explain what you mean by that? Regardless of what you're trying to sell, you know, the influence you're trying to have, whether you're a leader or whether you're a salesperson or you're, whether you're a business person doing your own marketing, I think that we, we tend to get caught up in what we want people to do. And I think what we should be asking about, ask, or the question we should be asking rather, is who do we help people to be? Mm. In other words, who do we help our staff to be? Who do we help our customers to be? You know, when, when a staff member leaves our employee, what identity do they take away? What, what um, uh, legacy are they taking away from their time working with us? And for customers, who do we help them to be? And, and the, you know, the best organizations have always focused on that. You know, I think that's one of the things you know, Apple's always held up as this amazingly innovative company, but they actually didn't develop that much technology. What they did was they wrapped it up in an idea of, of who you could be. You know, you could be someone 
who thinks differently, you know, and that was that was a far more uh, emotional place to to live into in terms of identity versus just saying, well, we've got a product that has X, you know, kind of graphics or Y kind of stories. They never played that game. They actually showed you who you got to be by using their product. And Gary, we think innovation comes out of identity and mm-hmm. most people think innovation sometimes is, oh, we've now got a chocolate flavor or we now have a blue option. And that's mm-hmm. not true innovation. Innovation should be on purpose. It should be deliberate and congruent with someone's identity, a customer's identity. And it's actually a leadership skill. And most people think, oh, it's just something, you know, to keep up with trend. It's about creating the future and creating what's next. Uh, so it's really important that you know who you are and that you innovate congruently with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, innovation is really category leadership. It's designing yeah. what the future of an industry will look like and act like. So that's got to be led, obviously, to, to Kieran's point, which I, I, I think this is great. Um, how, what, how does a leader do that? Like, what, what would you say to a leader who goes, you know what, I'm really digging what these guys are saying. Um, I want to start putting these things into place. What would a leader do to start filling in some of these gaps, do you think? What, 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 are, what are some tangible steps or questions that a leader could write down the piece of paper or walk away from this podcast and do? Yeah, look, I think it's about, I mean, without getting it, you know, too, uh, too woo-wah about it, it's about having an understanding about who you, um, who you really are as an organisation. I think the biggest problem we see for most organisations is that they're typically category generic. Most mm. people are just, they look like everyone else. Yep. You know, we were doing some work with a financial services firm recently and uh, we asked them, we asked them um, what, what they thought was distinctive about their business versus some of their competitors. And they said, oh, we think our logo. <laughs> we said, well, well what, do you, what, what do you mean about your logo? And they said, well, the, the colour of it. And, and we said, well, it's blue. That's, that's surely quite a common colour for financial services firms. And they said, yeah, but not that colour of blue. <laughs> and, and, I mean, we laugh at that, but I think that's really, where, yeah. th- that's really where a lot of businesses are playing. I mean, when you start up a business, you know, it, it's quite, most accountants try to look like other accountants. Most plumbers try to look like other plumbers. We assume that, you know, to be, to be that kind of business, we need to look like that kind of business. And it's actually the opposite. It's actually about embracing our distinctiveness. And one of the things that, you know, you, you hear in self-help books all the time talking about play to your strengths, play to your strengths. But the problem with strengths is, is that they're category generic. Mm. So, so for instance, if, you've, if you're a, um, a carpenter in, or in a room filled with carpenters, being good with a hammer is, is not particularly distinctive. So is there a process you take people through, Dan, to, to do that? I mean, knowing, knowing you as a straight-up sort of guy and not putting up with the spin that goes on generally with this stuff that most companies would take in, is there, is there a process or something you could say to a leader who goes, you know what, I'm that carpenter? What, what's, what's a key question that they could ask themselves straight away to step away from the other carpenters? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, you know, Kieran and I often run people through a workshop called, you know, the stand, which is about, you know, what do you stand for? Who do you stand with? What do you stand against? And how do you stand up? And those four, you know, those four factors, you know, we run people through a, through a series of exercises that sort of tease those things out. And it's actually a hard process. 
Mm. You know, when you actually get people to, to, to play in that, you know, they it tests them. And it's also about what they're willing to give up. Um, we tend to have a scarcity mentality and we work with clients and they go, oh, but we, we don't want to give that up. But, for example, we work with a photographer and... You know, we spoke to her, just a small business, about running classes. And she said, well, there's lots of photography classes. They're easy to get into. You know, they're very generic. You know, she was a carpenter. And we said, well, what do you love photographing? What, you know, what's the thing you would most want to do? And she said, kids and babies. And we said, wow, that's the time in people's lives where they take more photos than any other moment. Mm. You know, they take thousands and thousands and thousands of photos of their kids. So why don't you teach parents how to take amazing photos of their children and just be known for that? And she has a hugely successful business just doing it that way instead of being mm. category generic. So it's hugely important that what we're willing to give up and what we're willing to uh, let go of can also be highly determining in our business. Could you just run through those those four stands just for because I think I think that was gold. What what were the the, the the stands you talked about? Well, it's about you know what do you stand for? So in other words, what's the what's the change that you want to um, bring about in the world? Yep. And then it's, you know, uh, who do you stand with? In other words, who do you collaborate with? Who do you need to team up with? Who lends weight to your cause or who can help fill the gap that you have in your business? What do you stand against? I mean, I think that goes back to, if you think about, you know, when we worked on the launch of Aussie Home Loans all those years ago, you know, we mm-hmm. very, you know, um, definitely picked a fight with the big banks. And, and that was what John, you know, stood for. You know, he, um, he was as much defined by who he was, you know, standing against as he was what he was standing for. And then in terms of how you stand up, it's about what's your unique tone of voice? You know, what's, what are the stories people tell about on you on your behalf? Because I think that's really, you know, the most powerful tool we have in communications, particularly in an age of, of hyper-connectivity, where, you know, according to Nielsen Research, 91% of people are relying on friend recommendations before, before making a purchase mm. or before deciding what suburb to, to move to, what school to send their children to, what organisation to work for. You know, when 91% of people are relying on friend recommendations, your capacity to build stories that people will, you know, tell and retell and share on your behalf is actually going to be critical. And we don't tell stories about good. You know, we don't tell stories about expected. You know, our memories don't work that way. We don't work on fact and we don't, our memories don't work sequentially. We work on, our memories work on, you know, the outliers in our experience, either the very, very good or the very, very bad. So I think it's about what do we develop those stories around, you know, those exceptional, surprising, unexpected things that, that, that have a stand out from everyone else. Oh, there's gold on them there, Hills, Robbo. Cha-ching. That's gold. If you were thinking about an SME and you could picture in your mind a great leader that you've worked with or seen that you admire in the SME space and they are a creative leader, which we've talked about, how would you describe, what were the attributes of that person? How would you describe them? What are the things they do that makes them in your mind a great creative leader? Could you describe that for me? You know, Kieran and I were lucky enough to be really um decisive about the creative directors we wanted to work with when we were, you know, building our career initially. And we worked with, you know, people like George Betzis and people like Simon Reynolds and, and they really helped inform, you know, our, our view on business and the kind of business we wanted to create. So um, I think what made them unique was, and again, this goes, goes back to identity, they created an environment where their people got to do the best work of their lives. They created an environment where people wanted to be their best, wanted to deliver, uh, you know, above and beyond 
what was expected. And I think that that, you know, that characteristic to not just make your business about yourself, but to make your business about the people who are working for you and helping them achieve what, what they're looking to do with their lives was actually really critical. I, you know, I think, you know, we experienced a greater level of freedom and probably got a greater education into not just how to do our jobs, but how to build and start a business than we could have ever had anywhere else. Yeah, and they had a willingness to go against the trend and a willingness to do things differently. And, you know, they weren't always liked or, you know, they got called out for that. And I think that's a common thread as well, that willingness to be an individual and to not follow the expected path, which is really hard because, you know, well, it's always been done that way. It's such a common way that we do things. I mean, we're, we're surprised how often we go into organisations and you say, why do you do that? And people can't give you an answer. You know, it's mm. always been done that way. Yeah. <laughs> you go, wow, and we always almost do an audit on what are the unconscious things we do. You know, what are the things that we just do that way because that's how things are done around here. Mm. And we look into those. There's often gold in those spaces that you can change those small things up and make big differences into companies and small businesses. It's funny. One of the, one of the greatest opportunities for innovation or one of the greatest places to look for innovation, and I think this is relevant to anyone, regardless of the size of business that they're in, is is to innovate in the boring bits, you know, to look for the parts of the, the business that are breakage points. You know, those little things that you don't pay attention to. I think a, you know, a great example of that is, for instance, you know, Air New Zealand's warning videos, mm. which, I mean, the warning video is the most boring part of the flight. It's the part of the flight no one pays attention to. But Air New Zealand has actually turned it into their greatest asset. Yep. You know, they don't invest as much in TV advertising anymore because people are so busy sharing their warning videos on YouTube. I mean, and I think if, if you start with this concept of where are the boring parts in your business, how do you, you know, it might be your on-hold music, it might be how people do an online sign-up to, to your business. You know, by focusing on those boring things that people typically don't spend a lot of time thinking about, we actually get to be really distinctive in the way our offering comes to the marketplace. We're on a mission to change hold music. <laughs> you know, else when you're sitting on hold on a phone, that disingenuous voice that says, your call is important to us, please hold. <laughs> I just think, no, it's not. You would hire more staff if it was. Is it just me? No. Why don't we put, if you want to listen to a TED Talk, press one. If you want to hear U2's new album, because I need to sell that, <laughs> press two. Okay, why don't we have better options on hold if we yeah. really want to change our business? That's a boring bit. Hey, um... Kieran, I, um, I remember the last time I saw you speak, you talked about how people have this jargon that they go on with um, and you had this really nice piece about how people have these cliches and jargons and all the words they string together, a little like you just said. What's, what, tell me your, your, your view on that and how does that lead to um, the, is it human quot, quot, quotient? Human quotient. <laughs> so human intelligence in business today. You know, I'm all for WeQ, which is collaborative intelligence and uh, human quotient. And I think business sometimes loses its humanity and we wrap it up in jargon. I mean, somewhere along the way, we thought, let's exclude people and make ourselves sound like we know something other people don't know mm. by changing language around conversations. It kills me. You go into a room and, oh, we need more resource. You mean people. We need to hire some people. It's somehow the terminology has become resource. I don't know why. Uh, and you know, it drives me, drives me crazy because it's about sheltering ourselves and yeah, trying to exclude others. And you know, it's the same with 
presentations that are tomes of information. You're the presentation, not the tome of information. And I think we get confused by volume and tricks and we're so desperate to feel smart and valuable that we tend to bury those things. And the more human business is, technology is going to, in a way, disappear from our business. It'll be there, but it'll be so prevalent that it's a given. And the, the differentiating factor that's left is the humanity of a company. And I want to do business with a company that, that feels human and um, that feels decent. You know, it's, I always say be a good egg to businesses, you know. Be a good, just yes. be decent and people want to do business with you. It's funny, um, I was doing some work with, a, with an organisation um, last week and part of what they were doing was developing software um, for after-school care. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the technical guys who was working on it turned to me and he said, yeah, so what we've got is we're setting up a system of asset tracking and uh, retention. And I said, <laughs> you, mean, you mean understanding where our children are and making sure they end up in the right place? <laughs> And, and he said, yeah. And I said, you don't have kids, do you? I mean, I don't have kids either. But he looked at me and he said, no, I have cats. And I'm like, dude, you need to stick with the cats. <laughs> I said. I think they're more of a cost if you have them than an asset. But, uh, you know. <laughs> um, I think this is gold. Tell me, um, I totally buy in this philosophy and I'm, I'm right, I'm in the same lane as you guys. It annoys the crap out of me. There's a leader listening to this podcast, guys, and they go, you know what? I'm sick of my organization doing that. You're exactly right. Tell me what they do immediately. They, they finish up, hopefully I'll listen to us till the, till the end, but they finish up the podcast and they go and do one thing. What would you tell them to go and do? I think, I think they should try and instigate a paradigm shift. No, I'm kidding. I'm using jargon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, know, you know that game, uh, Corporate wanker bingo yes. <laughs> you know it's, it's like play that in your organisation call people out every time you know keep a, keep a grid on the board and every time someone says a word you know put a, put a dot just call them on it you know how are we going to humanise our language and, and just be simple in that classic art of stripping things back to simplicity I didn't sorry about the long letter I didn't have time to write a short one yeah. which comes into email and oh people stop emailing Email's the death of business, I tell you. Mm. There's people in emailing inane stuff. They're not talking to each other. They're shunning responsibility via email. Uh, I think we have to be really careful about that. Well, e- email is an abdication of responsibility. It's like, well, it's, I've emailed it, therefore it's off yeah. my to-do list. It's someone else's issue now. Mm. And I think that, you know, we, we do that a lot. And I think it's about keeping our communications real. And, and really, the, um, you know, the, the, the critical factor... Uh, in terms of business success, and it sounds like the stupidest thing in the world, is an understanding of your customers. You know, the most frightening thing I think any of us experience uh, when we work with clients and we say, tell me a little bit about your customers, is how quickly people run out of things to say. Yeah. You know, when it's... Um, uh, the, and I think what's, what's true of all selling is the sale is almost never in the product. It's almost always in the prospect. In other words, the more you know about your customers, the more engaging you get to be. And, and, you know, if we think about selling as a listening skill rather than as a talking skill, I think that's a pretty good place to start. I think it's a great point, Dan. I met a guy, um, I was doing a speech in Adelaide on Thursday. 
And before I started, it was a group of uh, 20, 21 CEOs. And they were going around the room talking about what was significant in their business in the last month since they'd seen each other. And this one guy said, I've learned to be a koala and not an alligator. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, well, koalas have really big ears and a small mouth, whereas alligators have really big mouths and small ears. And he said, I've learned to be a koala. And he said, in the last month, it's made such a difference because I'm actually hearing what's being said, listening and actually hearing, um, as opposed to waiting for my turn to talk. And I just thought it was such a simplistic and beautiful uh, metaphor for exactly what you're saying. Well, it is, but I mean, I always think of koalas as cranky stoners. So. <laughs> hey, uh, before we're just going to give me one more question before we get onto your book. Um, strategy today, um, I hear the word used over and over again. You're working with some terrific businesses and, you know, and I know you're doing wonderful work. For you two, what's your view on strategy? What's missing and what, no- what needs to be done immediately to make it a true strategy? Uh, look, I think that's a really good question. I mean, it's, uh, I, th- I think it's an, it's an accurate word. I, you know, it's not one of those words that I think is, um, has completely lost its meaning. And I, what I think it is, is it's about taking the time to actually plan and do things deliberately. Um, and I think if, if strategy includes things like really getting, um, to terms with who your customers are and generating that kind of, uh, that kind of understanding. I mean, there was an ad I, from a, I found in my local newspaper for a local florist um, years ago, and it had a single rose, a small bunch of roses, and a big bunch of roses with the headline, Just How Sorry Are You? <laughs> and I thought, what was beautiful about that was this was a local florist. This is a small business. Someone who typically doesn't have a marketing degree, doesn't have time to sit and strategize about what they do. But what they've done is they've clearly taken the time to sit and think about who's, who's buying my product? What's their mental state at the time they're doing that? What are they evaluating through? And it was such an engaging piece of communication versus, you know, we have all range of flowers and they're available at all kind of price points and that kind of generic boring you know, marketing that they could have gone into and actually built a, um, they built a relationship with me by just being a little bit more clever than their competitors. Mm. And I think when, you know, when you consider strategy in that, in that, um, context, where it's about being smart and intelligent and developing a better understanding of the marketplace and your customers, I think strategy is incredibly important. So guys, you're about to, uh, if it hasn't been launched, I'm not sure the exact date of release yet. But you have a brand new book out called Selfish, Scared and Stupid. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct. It's out uh, the 1st of October. <clears throat> it sounds like a behind-the-scenes uh, look at our recording studio here, Robbo. Yes. Selfish, Scared <laughs> and Stupid. Um, it's the operator. Tell us. Uh, so it's out, <laughs> it's out Wednesday. Um, what can we expect from the book? What can we learn from it? Why, why would someone want to grab it? Look, I think what, what this is fundamentally back is, it, about is look, getting into the truth of human nature. And there's, there's, there's a couple of things. It's about understanding that our survival brain still calls dibs on our decision-making. In other words, we still filter through the fact that we're selfish, scared, and stupid. And that's actually been a pretty good thing for the past 65 million years of evolution. It's actually helped keep us alive. You know, being selfish made us look out for number one. Being scared made us look to mitigate the risks. And being stupid made us look for the simplest, easiest solution available. And then I think it's about, uh, you know, an understanding of that. And instead of, you know, trying to bully ourselves into behaving or, 
or trying to cajole our staff or, or manipulate our customers, instead of trying to change human nature, why don't we learn to work with human nature? Yeah, I mean, we, we think of it like swimming, learning to swim in the ocean, right? What are you told if you get caught in a rip? To always swim across or with the current of the water because it pushes you out and it pushes you back towards shore, which is your ultimate goal, to never swim against it. But in modern world and modern self-help spaces, we're constantly sort of fighting our natures, be more disciplined, work harder, you know, no pain, no gain. And it's not our natures. Our natures are selfish, scared and stupid. So it's actually about being kinder to ourselves in a way and working with what we have to get a result. And it's about understanding that, you know, discipline and motivation uh, have always been short-term strategies. You know, one of the issues we run into is we use discipline and motivation as our default strategies and then we wonder why we end up with long-term pain. And I think that that's what we're looking to is, is you know, have an understanding that design beats discipline. In other words, if we design the process so that it's selfish. In other words, we design the process so that there's something in it for the people we're trying to engage with. If we, make, if we design it in terms of thinking scared, in other words, we, we look to mitigate the risk. We look to make, it, um, to make the risk of engaging with us lower and the risk of not engaging with us higher. And if we look to make it simple, if we look to make it easy, in other words, all that's designed in, our chances of success are, are a, lot, uh, a lot more uh, available. So I'll, get, I'll give you an example of this from, from you know, my personal life. Kieran and I were talking about this just the other day. We, um, so I've, I spend a lot of time at work. I'm a type A personality. I'm always at the office. And I've been trying to spend more time at home. And what we found was it didn't matter how motivated I was to do this. It didn't matter how disciplined I was about closing my laptop you know, lead down and, and getting on the road. I just wasn't spending enough time at home. So we sat down and we did the numbers. And we looked at it and we said, well, hang on, I've got an hour's commute to work and an hour's commute home. That's two hours a day. That's 10 hours a week. That's one really long day every week times 52 weeks is 52 days factoring weekends. That's two whole months every year away from home. Now, motivation can't solve that problem. Discipline won't solve that problem. It's actually a design failure. If I was no more disciplined, if I had no more motivation to get home, and all I did was move the office half an hour closer to my home, or move my home half an hour closer to the office, I instantly, automatically, effortlessly get an extra month at home every year. So that's the kind of thing we're looking at, is instead of beating ourselves up and making ourselves wrong and and um, forcing ourselves to behave in ways that aren't natural for us. Let's look at the process um, holistically and design it in such a way that it, does, that it makes it easy, it makes it automatic, it makes it effortless, and it makes it fun. I mean, that's, that's really where we're going to see people lift their performance. That's when we're going to see customers engage with us, and that's when we're going to see ourselves lift our own personal performance is when, you know, rather than having to push ourselves to do it, it's something that comes easily. It's something that comes um, uh, natural for us. Dan, I saw you tweeted recently, um, design beats discipline. Is that, was that what was going on when you tweeted that? Design beats discipline? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, and we don't think about it that way. Mm. You know, we tend to think of, you know, if, um, uh, you know, if we fail at something, we tend to beat ourselves up and say, oh, look, I'm just not disciplined enough. 
And and I think that that's actually a mistake. I think it's um, look, and it's not saying that discipline doesn't play a role in our lives. Clearly, it does. Mm, mm. But to think that discipline is an all day, every day, three sixty five days a year activity is to make a critical error, um, and actually to set ourselves up for failure. Uh, yeah, and look, even the most disciplined people are disciplined in an area. You know, it's rare that we're disciplined in every area of our lives, and we we just talk about the ones we're really disciplined in. So, you know, you'll find the personal coach who's got a really messy house, or they haven't done their taxes, or, you know, they, they forgot to pick their kids up on time, uh, because their values are disciplined in health and well-being, uh, but maybe not in other areas. So we align our values in order of uh, what we think is important, and we find discipline in those spaces. And we beat ourselves up in the other spaces. What's wrong with me? I can't do it. I have no discipline. <laughs> I think that's great. Discipline beats uh, design beats discipline. I think that's just uh, that's gold. That's terrific. Um, now, if I go out and grab this book, give me the top things that I'm going to learn by reading it. So I, I love the premise of it. I think the stuff you're talking about is so powerful. When someone reads the book, what are, what are the, the top line most important learnings and takeaways that I take out of this book? Well, we're teaching people, you know, to to filter the world into these basics: think selfish, think scared, think mm. stupid. So, think selfish. Think about something from another person's point of view. What what do they get about out of engaging with you? Uh, it's a really valuable strategy. Uh, yeah, to have people engage with you. So we talk about, we don't talk about in the book, but we've been talking about the um, ALS challenge, the Ice Bucket Challenge, and how as a charity yep. for a change, ALS, most people still don't even know what it is, but that's not the point. The point is that people, have, they thought it's selfish and people get something out of engaging with them. They get social kind of fame, they get to do what celebrities are doing, they get to take a little risk, they get to make a video, you know, there's a lot in it for them. And ALS get the money they need to do the research they need and they have the awareness they need. But we don't understand the disease, but we don't need to. It's a really yeah. interesting angle for, it, for, it, for a charity. Essentially what they've done is for one of the first times in history, a charity has thought more about the people they want to give the money than they have about the people they want to give the money to. Yeah. And, and as a result, it's, it's kind of paying dividends. I mean, I think the, 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 the nutshell of what, what people will get out of this book is a better understanding of the human side of business, a better understanding of what motivates us, what drives us as human beings. And it doesn't matter if you're a leader, if you're a salesperson, if you're a marketer, or you're just trying to you know, better engage yourself in the kind of things you're trying to achieve in your life. You know, that understanding of, of our humanity is actually critical to success. Beautiful. So the book's out. Where, where are we going to be able to get it, guys? Where's it, where's it available? It's in lots of bookshops, uh, so yeah. and obviously online at Booktopia and Amazon and Vimex and Angus and Robertson and all those places. Uh, pretty much. I can't, be I can't believe an advertising creative director didn't say available oh, at all good bookstores. Oh, it was, it was <laughs> that's that's what I was expecting. Oh, actually, that'd be different. That'd yeah. be get yours now, <laughs> Karen. You couldn't be as cliched as that, could you? <laughs> no, that's what I'm we've got to be different. I mean, we're preaching think different and, hey, you know, say available at all good bookshops now and, you know, hurry, 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 they'll sell out. Well, I'm going to put it out there that I, um, what happened, guys, we interviewed Matt Church and as part of it I said to him, mate, what are you reading right now and what's the best read you've had of recent times? And he he said your book was 
unquestionably the best book that he had read for quite a while. He and, and I think Matt is, you know, is the leader of thought leaders. So I take his word for it. So I know this, you know, based on what Matt said and, and the stuff you've talked about here, um, I, I know this will be a cracking book and uh, congratulations for uh, for doing it. And I, and I think you've been working for quite a while, haven't you, Dan? There's a lot of work on this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's... Uh it's definitely a book we we waited to write, um, and and it's you know I think it's 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 a challenging thing to to buy into. I mean, the idea of we're selfish, scared, and stupid. Uh, you know, your initial you know um, impression isn't well. That's a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, but I think you know once once you understand the concept, you know people really get to understand the truth of it. Um, um, and get to understand that, you know, maybe we are structuring things in a way that makes things more difficult than they need to be. Um, and just before we uh, let you guys go, where can we, uh, where can we, where can people get in touch with you? Because you talked about some wonderful work you're doing with clients. Where's the most efficient way to find y'all? The easiest way to find us is at the website, which is theimpossibleinstitute.com. And when you type it, just watch out. It's quite hard to type. It's often uh, all those P's and L's or something makes it quite difficult. <laughs> There's a lot of, I can't type it. We didn't actually check the typeability of the address when we did it. Well, guys, um, on behalf of Robbo and I and, uh, and our audience, thank you so much for being able to get both of you on the line um, at the same time is an absolute treat. There was gold in them, their hills, um, during this, this little podcast and, uh, I personally can't thank you enough, Robbo. Um, mate, what a great! I promised you a good session, didn't I? It's brilliant. I, I personally though want to find those hills that have all the gold in them. <laughs> you keep mentioning. <laughs> well, thank you guys. It's been yeah. great to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, guys, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Gee, gee, they were good, mate, weren't they? Aren't they good? Very clever. I'm going to grab a copy of that book. That because um, there is some. There is lots of gold in them there hills. Cha-ching. I'm very good at being scared and stupid, so I probably won't get much out of it. And I've always found you very selfish, so maybe it's not, <laughs> maybe it's not a book for you, my friend. Oh, thanks for that ringing <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> hey, um, but I have got another book for you. Yep. All right, hang on. The Mojo Pages. There you go. I've played the official intro now, and now you may speak. I think this book may interest you, mm. and it was recommended to me by Ty Lopez, who we referred to in one mm. of our earlier shows. Yeah, he, does a, he does a book a week, tylopez.com. Mm. And in an interview he did, and through his writings, he talked a lot about Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, Total Recall. Now, I'm an Arnie fan from the movies, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I didn't know whether I really cared to read the book, but... He was so glowing in his praise, I decided to order it. And we'll put a link up on our website so people can link straight through and collect the book the same way I did. And I've got to say, for anybody who wants to achieve anything in life, this book is a real inspiration. Mm. I'll caveat it. I'll caveat my review by saying that the book itself is amazing with everything he did. He dreamt it, then he did it. He was meticulous. He did the hard work. When he had shortcomings, he worked on them to make them right. And it really is, it staggers you that, it, that all along his career he could see something mm. 
then he would work towards surrounding himself with the right people, taking the right steps to make it happen. And mm. you've got to look at his record of what he's done, and it pretty, mm. it's pretty extraordinary. The governator. The go- yeah. But, and that's probably where it starts to lose me a little with the book, yeah. is that the impression you get is that he was so dedicated to his goals mm. and so dedicated to aspirations as a person, he may not resonate with everybody. However, in saying that, the book is a definite must-read wow. to inspire you to do the things you want to do in life in all aspects. And there was everything from learning how to, to, you know, to speak English, to wanting to be in Hollywood, to having his first home. Once he had a home, he wanted a building. Once he had a building, he wanted a big building and all mm. the steps he took along the way mm. and surrounding himself with the right people. So I, um, I would recommend the book. I really enjoyed it. Mm. It's quite a big book, so it's good value for money. Mm. But uh, it would make a great present for anybody who loves Arnie, the movies, bodybuilding, performance, being your best, achieving goals, a business person who like it would be a really good Christmas present. We'll put a link up in the show notes for people to uh, to grab the book. Yeah. Do it. One question. Mm-hmm. You know that twenty cents at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Can I use that to buy the book? You can certainly put it towards. <laughs> you can certainly put it towards the oh, book. Is that yes, awesome? you can. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> so um, that's my book recommendation. I reckon we're uh, just about done for the week, buddy. Over and out. That's it. I reckon it's. Uh, and you know what, Gaz? <laughs> we'll be back. Hasta la vista, baby. (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice realtimecasting.com Andrew Peter speaking see you next time